Welcome to the United by Strength podcast. Hard work knows no gender, race, sexuality, or creed. It is the universal building block upon which successful tribes are built. Here, you will learn from powerlifting coaches, gymnastics coaches, CrossFit coaches, nutrition coaches, and strongman coaches. We collaborate and share best practices and want to bring our experience and continuing education to you. What is fitness? Part two. This concept started with me having what I call a belief in fitness. I was, and still am, of the view that there is a physical capacity that would lend itself generally well to any and all contingencies, to the likely, to the unlikely, to the known, to the unknown. This physical capacity is different than the fitness required for sport. One of the things that demarcates sport is how much we know about the event's physiological demands. Instead, we are chasing headlong this concept of fitness as a broad, general, and inclusive adaptive capacity, a fitness that would prepare you for the unknown and the unknowable. And we went to the literature to look for such a definition and could not find anything. The information we did find seemed esoteric, irrelevant, or flawed, logically and or scientifically. For example, to date, the American College of Sports Medicine cannot give a scientific definition of fitness. They give a definition, but it contains nothing that can be measured. If it is not measurable, it is not a valid definition. The first three models. And so we started playing with the definition and came out with three operational models. They were clumsy, but they had utility. They guided us and kept us on this path toward this fitness. The first model originated from Jim Cowley and Bruce Evans of Dynamax Medicine Balls. They produced a list of physiological adaptations that represented the gamut of potential physiological adaptations in an exercise program. You can improve cardiorespiratory endurance, stamina, strength, flexibility, power, speed, coordination, accuracy, agility, and balance by exercising. They gave reasonable definitions to each of these 10 so that they seemed fairly distinct. Keep in mind, however, nature has no obligation to recognize these distinctions. It is completely man-made. This is an abstraction to help us understand fitness better. What we did with this was we said that he or she was as fit as he or she was developed in breadth and depth in those 10 capacities. And to the extent that he or she was deficient in one capacity relative to any cohort, he or she was less fit. This is a balance, a compromise of physiological adaptation. The second model is a statistical model based on training modality. A hopper, like those used to determine a lottery winner, is loaded with as many skills and drills from as many different sports and strength and conditioning regimens imaginable. It could be agility drills from track, 
one rep max bench press from football, Fran, Helen, and Diane from CrossFit, Pilates, and yoga. Do not exclude anything. The more, the better. Then, line up everyone willing to participate, turn the handle, pull a task out at random, and put them to the test. Here is the contention. He or she that performs best at these randomly assigned physical tasks is the fittest. It may very well be that the fittest man on earth is in the 75th percentile for each event picked. In fact, being best at many things would tell me immediately that you are not as fit as you could be. Let's take a uh, quotation break from Greg Glassman here. Valid criticisms of a fitness program need to speak to measurable, observable, and repeatable data. If an alternative to CrossFit is worthy of our consideration, it ought to be presented in terms of distance, time, load, velocity, work, and power related to movements, skills, and drills. Give me performance data. CrossFit can be scientifically and logically evaluated only on these terms. Going back to the text. For instance, if you have a four-minute mile time, thousands of people are much fitter than you. Part of the adaptation to get a four-minute mile is that it coincides with the max bench press of about half body weight and a vertical leap of about three to four inches. That is part and parcel of the adaptation. It is not a character flaw. There's no value judgment here. Rather, you are not advancing your fitness. Instead, you are advancing a very narrow bandwidth of a specialized capacity. Everyone probably knows what it is they do not want to see come out of the hopper. What I have learned about fitness, about sports training, about preparing yourself for the unknown and the unknowable is this. There is more traction, more advantage, more opportunity in pursuing headlong that event or skill that you do not want to see come out of the hopper than putting more time into the ones where you already excel. That thing you do not want to see come out of the hopper is a chink in your armor. It is a glaring deficiency in your general physical preparedness, and fixing it will give advantage where it does not always make sense, maybe mechanically or metabolically. We have countless examples of this from amateur and professional sports. At the heart of this is that we have learned some things about GPP that the world never knew before. There is more opportunity of advancing athletic performance via advancing GPP than there is in more specific sports strength and conditioning training. For example, I am not sure why more pull-ups make for better skiers, but they do. We have some theories why that occurs, but we do not actually need to know the mechanism. We are focused on advancing performance. And that's page 33. We have a graphical representation of one's fitness or work capacity at a certain time in his or her life. So this is a graph illustrating work capacity and what that means, which is uh, something you should definitely look at. So the second model is a statistical model using skills and drills. I am looking for a balance of capacity across training modalities. The third model 
uses three metabolic pathways. These are the three engines that produce adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, the currency of effort and of all energy output. Power is plotted on the y-axis and duration of effort, or time, on the x-axis. The first pathway, the phosphocreatine or phosphagen, is high-powered and short-duration. It can account for about 100% of max human output and taps out at about 10 seconds. The second pathway, lactate or glycolytic, is moderately powered, moderate duration, and accounts for approximately 70% of max power output, peaks at about 60 seconds, and terminates at 120 seconds. The third pathway, oxidative or aerobic, is low-powered, long-duration. It accounts for approximately 40% of max power output and does not fade in any reasonable time for which I have the patients to measure. The phosphagen and glycolytic pathways are anaerobic. Oxidative is aerobic. All three engines work all the time to some extent. The degree to which each is active is dependent on the activity. One idles while the other two rev, two will rev and one will idle, etc. Our thought is this, he or she is as fit as he or she is balanced in capacity in all three of these engines. A human being is a vehicle with three engines. Suppose we discover there is a fourth engine. We want capacity there too. We develop capacity in all engines through our prescription, constantly varied, functional movement executed at very high intensity. We are looking for a balance in the bioenergenics, the engines that fuel all human activity. Now we're going into definition of fitness, 2002 to 2008. Although clumsy, these three models served as a litmus test for the fitness we were after, and we moved forward. We launched CrossFit.com and posted the workout of the day, or WAD, constantly varied, high-intensity functional movement. We were collecting the data from doing these workouts of the day and started asking, what does it really mean to do Fran? What does it really mean to do Helen? What does it mean to say that your time went from seven minutes to six minutes to five minutes to four minutes? Some interesting things came of this. The workout Fran is 21-15-9 thrusters at 95 pounds and pull-ups. Complete the workout by doing 21 thrusters, front squat 95 pounds, then drive it to overhead. Then 21 pull-ups, get your chin over a bar from a hang anyhow. Then go back to the thrusters for 15 repetitions, 15 pull-ups, nine of each to finish. Stop the clock and we get a total time for effort. Power is force times distance or work divided by time. The work required to do Fran is constant, force times distance. It does not change unless your height changes, aka the distance. The distance we travel the movement's range of, range of motion changes, i.e. Uh, changing the, the total range of motion from the movement, or that the load changes, 95 pounds. So if we scale the weight up or down, that would change it. Or your body weight changes. This means that every time you do Fran or a specific benchmark workout, the work is constant. So 
You do Fran for the first time and have a time one for it, or T1. If you do it a year later, the same work was completed, but you have a separate time, or T2. In comparing the two efforts, we find that the work quantity cancels out, and the difference in time is the difference in power produced. You can see this in table one. There will be measurement error in this calculation. I can measure the force to weight with a scale, the distance traveled with a tape measure, and time with a watch. There is not a lot of error therein, but there are some concerns as we are calculating the body's displacement by using the center of mass, for example. However, as long as the work is constant, the same error occurs with every effort. And in comparison from one effort to the next, the errors cancel each other out, zero order error. This ratio of time, T2 slash T1, describes my progress to the accuracy and precision of the watch, which is the best of my three tools, stopwatch, tape measure, and scale. By tracking the difference in time between workout attempts, we are looking at changes in power. We did not have to study this much longer to come to this understanding that your collection of workout data points represented your work capacity across broad time and modal domains. This is your fitness. With power on the y-axis and duration of effort on the x-axis, the power output of any effort can be plotted. Take a handful of efforts that take approximately 10 seconds to do, measure their power output individually, and then get an average of these efforts. Repeat this. Exercise at 30 seconds, two minutes, 10 minutes, 60 minutes, etc. Plot these data points with adequate scientific accuracy and precision. I have graphed mathematically an individual's work capacity across broad time and modal domains by doing so. I'm going to go back here. You heard me flipping papers around there for a second. Uh, there's a big table, table one here on page 35, and that gives you a whole breakdown of all that stuff that we just talked about. So it gives you the workout Fran. It gives you the athlete. Uh, if you take in your level one course, you're going to, this is the, um, when they give the lecture on uh, power and what is fitness, you're going to get this uh, in detail. The six foot tall athlete weighing 200 pounds. And then they're showing you uh, how we're calculating the total work. And it's showing you that again, you know, with multiple uh, Fran attempts, because the errors uh, cancel out and because your factors in terms of your body weight or height and things like that are con consistent, those things cancel each other out. And what you're left with is your ability to do work, uh, which is represented in your time. So, you know, your frame time goes down by a minute. It's just showing you mathematically how that indicates that your power output is increased or rather that your fitness is increased. So back to page 36. Paragraph A, fourth model, and the definition of health coming in at 2008. Along the way, in using these three models, we had also observed that there was a continuum of measures from sickness to wellness to fitness. If it was a measure, I could quantify something of interest to a physician or exercise physiologist. We find it would sit well-ordered on this pattern. Take body fat, for example. If you are 40% body fat, that is considered morbidly obese. 
The numbers vary by community, but 15% is often considered well or normal. 5% is typically what you would see in an elite athlete. Bone density follows a similar pattern. There is a level of bone density that is pathological. It is osteoporosis or osteopenia in early stages. There is a value that is normal. We find gymnasts with three to five times normal bone density. I can do this with a resting heart rate, flexibility, any of the 10 general physical skills, and even some subjective things where we cannot put numbers to through analytical models, i.e. your mood or uh, depression, things like that. I do not know of a metric that runs counter to this pattern. This observation led us to believe that fitness and health were varying different measures of the same reality. And there's a very, very important, super famous uh, graph here, figure two on the bottom of page 36, which gives you a visual representation of health where we're taking uh, the definition of fitness and then expanding it out across the lifespan of the organism uh, to give you health being uh, work capacity across broad time and modal domains throughout the life of the organism. Moving on to page 37, top of page 37. This also means that if you are fit, you first have to become well to become pathologically sick. It tells me that fitness is a hedge against sickness with wellness as an intermediate value. If there is anything in your lifestyle, training regimen, or recreational pursuits that has one of these metrics moving in a wrong direction, I want you to entertain the possibility you are doing something profoundly wrong. What we find is when you do CrossFit, i.e. constantly varied, high intensity, functional movements, and you eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar, and get plenty of sleep every night, we do not have this divergent side effect. It does not work such that everything is moving except one value. We knew this observation could be another test in assessing one's fitness regimen. Recall that we represent fitness as the area on the curve on a graph with power on the y-axis and duration of effort on the x-axis. By adding a third dimension, age on the z-axis, and extending the fitness across, it produces a three-dimensional solid. That is health. And with this measure, I have the same relationship to things that seemingly matter, i.e. HDLs, triglycerides, heart rate, anything that the doctor would tell you is important. I am of the opinion that health would be maximally held by maximizing your area under the curve and holding that work capacity for as long as you can. In other words, eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar, do constantly varied, high intensity, exercise, learn and play new sports throughout your life. This will buy you more health than will trying to fix your cholesterol or bone density with a pharmaceutical intervention. That is a failed approach. I want you to understand how these definitions of fitness and health are different than that found in exercise science literature. First, understand that our definitions of these quantities are measurable. One of the problems with exercise science is that it would very rarely meet the rigors of any real science, i.e. chemistry, physics, or engineering.
Secondly, it is also almost never about exercise. For example, VO2 max and lactate threshold are correlates, maybe components, but absolutely subordinate to what happens to work capacity. Who would take an increase in VO2 max for a decrease in work capacity across broad time and modal domains? What that would look like is breathing more air than you ever had before on a treadmill test in a lab, but then losing the road race. Similarly, someone's lactate threshold could increase, but they still get choked out in the fight because of lack of work capacity. I could, I could make a list of hundreds of these metrics, and no one has ever produced a great athlete by advancing them one at a time. It just does not happen. I can move them best by doing constantly varied, high-intensity functional movements, doing things that look like Fran, Diane, Helen, turning fitness into sport by working with fixed workloads and trying to minimize the time by making every workout a competitive effort amongst the cohort. And when I do that, what we find is that these metrics do spectacular things. Suppose a man at 90 years old is living independently, running up and down steps, and playing with his grandchildren. We would not be concerned if his cholesterol numbers were high. There is a, a problem looking only at longevity. Imagine a curve that stretches to 90 or even 105 years old, but has very low work capacity for its duration. That is not what CrossFit is about. It is about vitality and capacity. What can you do? It is imperative for making meaningful assertions about training that fitness and health are measurable. The area or volume under the curve gives me a scientifically accurate, precise, and valid measure of an athlete's fitness or health. And we are the first to have ever done that. When we showed this to physicists, chemists, engineers, they agreed that there is no other way to assess the capacity of something, be it a rocket, a motorcycle, truck, or human. Tell me how much it weighs how far it moves, and how long it takes. Everything else is entirely irrelevant. Thank you for listening to the United by Strength podcast. We hope that you enjoyed the information that we were able to put out today. Please take from it what you want and leave what you don't. If you have feedback for us, please send it to unitedbystrengthpodcast at gmail.com. Please leave us a review if you have the time. It really helps people find the podcast and allows us to grow our base of listeners. 